0: Depression is very common among humans. It's a very common condition, a a lot of people suffer from it around the world, and yet we don't talk about it very often. And when we don't talk about something that a lot of people are suffering from, people are forced to go into the closet, Uh, people don't know how to help loved ones with depression, and therefore, the suffering that depression has is exacerbated by the fact that it isolates them from others. And sometimes loved ones of people with depression will say the wrong things, so to speak. They'll say hurtful things or they'll, they'll do things that might even make the depression worse. And as a therapist, I can tell you that the vast majority of people, in my humble experience, do not know how to help a loved one with depression. Well, to help solve that problem, I have a special guest on the podcast today, Dr. Susan Noonan, who published a book recently titled, When Someone You Know Has Depression, Words to Say and Things to Do. This book is is directly targeting people who have a loved one that has depression and what to say and, and, and what to do and how to help that person and how to, how to see it and how to cope. And, and it's, it's along those lines. So I, I want to talk about that with Dr. Noonan today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Dr. Noonan, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Kirk. It's quite a pleasure to be here today.
0: So please introduce yourself. Tell, tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself.
1: Well, thanks. Um, as you mentioned, yes, I am a physician. I'm also the author of now two books on depression. The first one for people who suffer from depression called Managing Your Depression, and the second one that you mentioned, which was written for family members and close friends of someone who has depression or bipolar depression. I also have a companion website uh, with a blog, and I blog on psychology today regularly on depression. Um, I do have a history of uh, personal experience with depression, so that gives me a unique perspective. It- In knowing um, firsthand what people are going through.
0: Interesting. So, do you mind telling us a little bit about your personal experience with depression?
1: Oh, certainly. Well, it started pretty much as a teenager, on and off through over the years. And initially, I went without treatment because that just wasn't done in my family. It was the '60s and '70s, and you know, you just kind of had to, you know, straighten up and pull up your socks and march on that was the era and the, the way things were done and it wasn't until about 16 or 17 years ago when I had a some hormonal changes associated with perimenopause that I know affects depression and I became totally unable to function and work and think clearly and communicate clearly and then um sought treatment and I received many different types of treatment, both medication and psychotherapy, in the course of treatment with very, very uh, astute clinicians who held hope for me when I actually was scraping bottom and and had no hope for myself. and Eventually, things turned around and I reached out and began to volunteer and that really helped. I then wrote each of my two books along the way as a way to try and assemble the notes that I took um, during many psychoeducational sessions and Uh, seminars that I attended. I had to write everything down at the time because I just my memory and my focus and concentration was off. And then I thought uh, others could benefit from what I had learned. So I put them in book form and Johns Hopkins University Press um, was impressed and wanted to publish them.
0: So when you were a teenager, you noticed that Uh, you were depressed or did you know it was depression or what would you how would you have conceptualized it at the time?
1: I knew I was in a funk in a sense and knew I was not happy I didn't know much about depression then nor did my family although there were other members in my extended family who did have depression although it was never really spoken about in our household and um, a friend of our family had gone to a, quote-unquote, retreat periodically, which, in retrospect, we knew was for depression. But at the time, it was just, oh, she went on a retreat type of thing. And I just didn't know. I just thought, well, this is just me. This is the way I am. Other people are able to live a freer life or, or have more fun. And maybe I'm just one of those people who... Isn't like that. And that's kind of the way when you're 13 or 14, you you think of things. Um, you don't learn about it. Then as I got older, in college or in medical school, it was difficult because stigma was a very, very real entity then. And I was working hard to get into medical school, and I didn't want this to get in the way of it, um, because people do make unfounded judgments and criticisms based on misinformation. And I wanted to protect my hard work, my reputation, so to speak, professionally.
0: Yeah, I could imagine what other peer physicians or instructors or employers would think about a physician who is clinically depressed as, as we might call it but what was your worry specifically what were you worried like you're gonna get fired or they're gonna not give you your license or you
1: sure I was worried about those two things I was concerned that they would doubt my judgment on clinical issues with patients that I was treating and perhaps they thought I might make um, errors in judgment um and would be constantly looking over my shoulder at what I might be doing if they you know had concerns and I didn't want to be scrutinized but I also didn't want to lose my job um and I didn't want anybody um, to, um, you know, bud their nose in to my personal issues and my personal affair because I felt that I could separate my personal life from my professional life. Of course, they're all intertwined and that isn't always the case. But at the time, I was insistent that I could separate the two.
0: Yeah, it's really quite silly to think that because someone's depressed, you know, there's this idea that especially in the past, but still to this day, if you have anything, you know, that could be characterized as a quote unquote mental illness, God knows what you're going to do, right? You might just go ranting and raving down the hallway, you know, screaming and pushing people over or something, you know, when when in reality, when you are depressed, you have, you know, might have trouble sleeping, you might have trouble with motivation, you might have trouble with Mm self-esteem, you might feel hopeless, uh, you might be irritable, but you're not psychotic, you're not you know, for the most part, most depressed people are not psychotic they're not delusional right. they're not there's nothing wrong with their cognitions there's nothing wrong with their intelligence there's nothing wrong with their capabilities as a as a physician
1: that's right
0: but having said that, there are you know there is research that I know very little about I'm sure you know more about that shows that when medical professionals are fatigued or burnt out, they make more mistakes, and that can lead to injury to patients. Do you have any thoughts about that for you particularly around this?
1: Even when I was episodes of not being depressed, the long work hours, and particularly as a resident in changing shifts, led to a lot of fatigue, and you had to be extremely careful to not make errors and to make sure that you were very observant of what you were doing. And certainly at a time when you were depressed, that was even more of an issue. But you just had to be very, very careful and very observant of what you were, you know, each step that you were making. And that was that was a challenge, of course.
0: So you knew that you needed to put in extra effort to pay attention, take notes, uh, double check prescriptions, this this sort of thing. You, You knew that oh, I, I'm, I, I'm having a, an upswing in depressive symptoms right now. That means I need to be extra careful. That's what you're saying?
1: Yeah. I always knew that when I got fatigued, I got more irritable and, and it just became harder to focus. And that I think is true for anybody working those long hours. Um, and at the time we were not protected the way residents are protected now. So we're working close to 140, 150 hours a week, and you just can't function very well working those kind of hours.
0: But So I just have one more question okay. uh, before we get back to, to to your book, is that you talked about how 16 years ago you had a significant depressive period. For the sake of the listeners to understand what depression can be like and to reduce stigma, Around that, since you're a successful physician and author, uh, what can you describe what that was like 16 years ago?
1: There was a lot of difficulty with being able to concentrate and function and focus, rather. I could not function in my routine daily activities. I had quite a terrible time sleeping. Um, That was just... um, something that escaped me i could be awake actually for a couple of days at a time it wasn't just feeling sad or depressed i was i was irritable a lot of the time i lost completely lost interest in most of the things that i had been interested in before not only just hobbies or reading or whatever but also friends um that i had um Didn't have much energy at all. It kind of felt like you're walking through molasses. Um, And at one point in time, I had told my physician, treating physician, that I had a problem with my mitochondria. Mitochondria are the little parts of the cells in our body that are the storehouse of energy. And that was the only word that I could come up with. That I could use to describe just how severe this loss of energy I felt was. That this little battery in ourselves was totally depleted in me. I felt completely worthless and hopeless about my situation, and at times suicidal. Can't you know deny that part of it?
0: So, yeah, it sounds like a terrible time. You know, I, I've treated a lot of people with depression. I, I've, I've. Personally, I personally don't suffer from depression, but I've had moments, I suppose, where I I get glimpses of what it would be like. You know, the low motivation thing is really the surprising feature. And perhaps if you've never been depressed out there in podcast land, it might be hard to relate. But if you have been depressed, you know what it's like. It's just even though you're physically capable of cleaning your house, for instance, you just cannot get yourself to do it yeah. it's you you you're, you can get up and run the vacuum but everything in your brain is saying what's the point just lay here on the couch or just don't move it, there's this sort of immobilization that depression can have on people and what a lot of people will say outside of depressed people will say, well, just get up and do it. You just got to cheer yourself up and you just got to put one foot in front of the other. And before you know it, you've cleaned the house or before you know it, you've, you've cheered yourself up and everything's fine. And that's great advice. If you're not depressed, it's great advice. If you're just kind of having a a bad day or you're having a little bit of trouble with motivation, but when you have full-blown depression, it is not that simple. And so let's get into your book. What what can people say to people that can help?
1: Well, there's a lot um, of things that people can say and do to help. The most important thing is to just convey to your loved one that you're listening and that you're interested in what he or she is thinking and saying. If you're listening without making judgment, if you show that you're hearing what the person is saying, and then if you respond in with empathy.
0: What were some of the things that you heard from people that were not so helpful? And what were some of the things that you heard from people that that were helpful?
1: Oh, you'll get over it. Or this is just passing. Or it's not as bad as you think. Or, um... You've been through this before, so you can do it again. Um, Meaning, you know, feeling bad. Um, You know, things like that are just not particularly helpful in the moment. Things that are helpful are, I think I understand what you're saying, and I'm here for you. I'm here with you, but not somebody trying to tell you what you think. Anytime anybody tried to tell me what I was Thinking or believing really just sent shivers up my spine. It just it just rubbed me the wrong way.
0: Well, let me ask you. So yeah. when people were helping you, I'm guessing that you experienced empathy as particularly helpful. What did it feel like? Because I'm I'm just trying to imagine you're you know you're significantly depressed. It's it's been a while, and someone comes along and really. He listens to you and and cares about you. I, I'm one. It, to me, I'm thinking that's not going to fix my mood. But but what what did it do for you in those moments?
1: It was validating. Um, it made it feel like what you were feeling was legitimate. If mm. you felt you were a piece of scum, scum of the earth, right then and there, are worthless or hopeless at that moment and you had somebody who understood that that's the way you felt right then and there they didn't have to agree with you but they would convey the message that i gee, i understand that you feel like you're not worthwhile or that you're not attractive or that you're not very intelligent or whatever it is that you were feeling at the time and I understand that you feel that way right now and I hope that um, this is something that um, you will allow me to feel with you and hope that this will be something that will be just in the short term and that over time you might change your thinking but for now I believe you That you feel this way. And if there's any way I can help you with this, please let me know. Things like that. Then that makes you feel like whatever you're feeling.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As a therapist, that's our bread and butter. We do that as much as we can in all of our dealings with clients to be empathic, to convey understanding, to be with, to not alienate, to not judge to not pressure them to be different, to not expect things that aren't likely to happen. And and so uh, Mm -hmm. it's good to hear that those are things that that helped you. Again, my guess is it didn't eliminate your depression, but it made life a lot better for you. I'm guessing you felt less isolated. Your self-esteem might have come up a little bit. You might have felt a little less hopeless. Is that true?
1: Yes. A good person... To support one would help to try and provide hope in their own way and to provide some realistic expectations or realistic optimism, meaning they would give a reasonable view of the future that involves some hope and some confidence that things will turn out well with enough hard work and determination.
0: Yeah, that's a a tricky thing because as you were saying earlier – you did not appreciate it when people said, oh, it'll pass, things will get better. That felt to you discounting of your reality and perhaps a little self-serving on the other person's part because they would like it to be that way. <laughs> Let's just yeah, put it
1: that way. Yeah, right.
0: But on the other hand, you're saying that it does help to try to instill what you call realistic hope. That That's a hard thing, I'm, I'm guessing, for some loved ones to figure out the a line between those two, you know, between being helpfully, you know, hopeful and being unhelpfully hopeful. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, um, it would be, um, the way to do it would be, in the example I gave, if, if your student had to take a semester off from school, you would convey that it was okay with you and that it wasn't a permanent situation. It was a temporary setback. And that um, you weren't going to, you know, realistically say, OK, next semester you're going to Harvard or MIT or Stanford, but that um, you were, you know, not judging them negatively for having taken the semester off. So you're you're balancing Um, What they have, what's in front of them and what they're capable of doing now and conveying the message that it's okay um, to do that and that it won't negatively affect the rest of their life, Um, that that won't have that impact, that it's a – that there is some hope for them beyond that that they need to be able to hold on to.
0: Yeah, that's a – a specific topic that we've talked about on the podcast before with some of my students who suffer from depression. And one of my students decided to just do that. Like you said, take, uh, we have quarters in the Northwest, which is different from the rest of the world. (laughs) Everywhere Mm -hmm. else has semesters. We have quarters for some reason. Okay. She decided to take uh, one or two quarters off from internship, which is actually something that's even more It's, you know, it's residency. Imagine in the middle of one's residency, just saying, I can't do this because of my depression. I'm going to take a break. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stigma around that uh, action. It's one thing to take a quarter off from, from academics. It's another thing to, in the middle of one's practicum experience to, to take off. And she, she did it because she was realistic and healthy and, uh, differentiated enough to be able to say look this is what i need i don't i don't care what other people think about what this is this is what i need plus her supervisor being a therapist herself was very supportive in that way and and understood the realities of depression and so so yeah the the hope that well when you feel better you'll come back and and you'll be able to complete your studies that's a a level of helpful optimism is what you're saying and Mm -hmm. that that makes yeah well I I have a few questions about your book specifically here okay so in the beginning you talk about how many people suffer from depression around the world and you start talking about gender a little bit which is always something that fascinates me and something that in you you wrote something that I hadn't thought about with depression I have thought about it with other disorders like borderline and this sort of thing in that you you're writing that this you know according to research women suffer from depression at much higher rates than men do yes but but it's possible that men actually suffer from the same rate of depression as women do but it's just that men either don't report it or the way we look at men is Different the way we categorize symptoms with men are different or the way that depressive symptoms show up in men are perhaps misdiagnosed mm-hmm. um, am i am I getting that
1: right? Yes, there was research that well there's two two things to think about first of all, we still don't have the answer and don't know the impact of female hormones on depression um, we do know that um it's difficult around the time of um, giving birth, um, where hormones are in a, in a roller coaster, um, and it's difficult to manage one's depression or bipolar disorder then. So, as far as men versus women, women have um, the additional problem of, you know, monthly. Changes in their hormones that do affect depression. We just don't have the answer to that yet. Science hasn't um, been able to give us that. Um, but secondly, which I found very interesting, and there was a research study that looked into this um, fact that we just may not be capturing all of the instances of depression in men with our current um, questionnaires or Survey instruments, because men may experience a slightly different set of of um, symptoms or experiences. They may be more irritable, or drink more, or be workaholics, um, and or have um, uh, more instances of substance abuse. Um, And those may not be the common things that come up on the depression inventories that we uh, characteristically use to screen somebody for depression. So it was very interesting when they came up with a questionnaire that incorporated some of those symptoms. The big differences between men and women seemed to um, even out a little bit. Um, So there's more to, to look to study about that and more to look into it the answers are not are not there but it's very interesting to to think that perhaps we're not capturing it all perhaps men don't go into their physician's office as frequently as women do perhaps when they do go They don't offer the same symptom complaints as women might, partly because of stigma, the macho image. They don't want to appear weak or or be complaining because they're raised in that way. Culturally, things are are different.
0: Yeah, uh, that always is something that uh, fascinates me. The one part that fascinates me in particular is when I was going through my own studies 20 years ago, studying psychopathology, it was just said, well, women suffer from rates of depression two to three times more than men do. And they would just move on from that. There was no discussion of how we measure depression, how our culture affects men in different ways than women, how men might report things differently, how we might see men and women differently. And I I am blown away that we never talked about that 20 years ago, and we barely talk about it now for, for that matter. So I was, I was really uh, – I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see it in, in, in your book because most people don't talk about it. And I appreciated it because this is a book for the lay public, mm-hmm. and it was uh, helpful pro- probably to a lot of people. In that it might actually help capture some men who are actually d- suffering greatly from depression but are just presenting differently. Mm-hmm. And so your your book, I think, advocates for that, which is good. Good. Um, I, I have a, a small nitpick. Uh, okay, Susan. If I if I if I could, sure. uh, And I, I hate to put you on the spot, but
1: okay. And
0: you you have a chapter on professional help and and how to seek professional help if you're a loved one. So, you know, what kind of professionals might you direct a depressed person to? And you miss like psych- you you mentioned psychiatrists, you mentioned nurse practitioners, you mentioned psychologists, and you mentioned licensed clinical social workers, and the I don't know if this is a New England thing because you're you're in Boston, correct? Yes. So I, I don't know if this is a New England thing, but uh, I, maybe this is a West Coast thing. But out here, we also have mental health counselors and marriage and family therapists who are also licensed and and capable and competent in treating depression as well. Do you have those professionals in your neck of the woods?
1: Not so much. So I guess that's my inexperience with those practitioners uh, and not including them in my book. And I apologize to them um, for uh, not um, knowing enough about it to be able to include them.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure to the readers, it it doesn't matter at all because they you mentioned that they should seek a referral through various different routes. And so they would likely get routed to. The appropriate professional, but I actually find that in literature, because I'm a marriage and family therapist, and we're perhaps the the least populated group of all the different groups. And if they're going to leave out one of the groups, it's my group.
1: Oh, <laughs> it's, mm, it's, sorry.
0: Uh, no, I'm <laughs> yeah. well. Uh, yeah, well, I you know, apology accepted. But maybe in a, a second edition, you can include. Uh, counselors, there's a there's a ton of counselors in the United States too, and I think in your neck of the woods they call them LPCs licensed professional counselors. I'm not quite sure, but but anyway, just a just a little nitpick. I just curious uh, to your to your thoughts on that. Okay, so I'll have
1: to learn I, more about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I uh, your book is is really chock full of very. Um, Practical help for people, and it's also written in a way that is very easy to understand for people. It's it's not technical at all, and it's a short read. It's a it's a it's a short book that people can read pretty quickly. One of the things that I liked was you had, you have kind of a rubric on page eighteen that talks about how to interpret severity of symptoms. So, for instance. You, you you have this, uh, this, uh, it's a spectrum. So, mm-hmm. you know, people get depressed and hopeless and irritable. And if it's, uh, if they are suffering from it a little bit, then you have a description of what that would look like. And if they're suffering from severe depression, then, then this is what that symptom looks like, you mm-hmm. know? So, uh. You know with difficulty concentrating at the mild end they have occasional mild episodes of difficulty concentrating at the severe end you say has this every day and it's intrusive is unable to read or converse normally um also uh you talk a fair amount about which i think is also great about how they can care for themselves so their mm-hmm. loved ones and their spouse or their child or their parent is depressed and you spend a fair amount of time talking about how they can care for themselves, how they need to care for themselves, how they shouldn't sacrifice themselves for their loved one, uh, and how they should watch out for signs of that. And, and, and also in extreme cases, they need to have boundaries perhaps with the depressed person yes. that if, if the depressed person is abusive in some way that, they should protect themselves from that and they don't have to put up with that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that that was really a good advice because for people that are picking up this book, my guess is is that they're very caring people and they want to take care of their loved one. Mm -hmm. And some of those people might have the certain personality or the certain background that compels them to sacrifice themselves. And, that isn't fair to them and honestly it doesn't even help the depressed person because if you're suffering yourself that is not you're not going to be the best help helper as a therapist myself as a physician yourself when we're suffering and we're burnt out and we're not healthy ourselves it's harder for us to have the resources to care for other people so I really appreciated that in your book as well.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's boundaries, setting boundaries, using tough love sometimes with your, you know, teenager or young adult. Those are all things that are difficult to do, but sometimes necessary.
0: Yeah. So any final words about this book? Um, Again, I'll, I'll say the name. When someone you know has depression... Words to Say and Things to Do by Dr. Susan Noonan. And you have another book called, what was it?
1: Managing Your Depression, What You Can Do to Feel Better.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Susan. It's been very interesting. And the more we can do to reduce stigma and to raise awareness regarding depression, the better, right?
1: Exactly. And I really yeah. appreciate this this uh, time, that the opportunity you gave me to be here today. Very, very interesting conversation we've had.
0: Well, that is it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.